Recovery Elevator, episode 147. When I admitted it to myself and I admitted it, began to admit it to others, it was like a, a weight that was lifted off my shoulders. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for 1,182 days. On today's podcast, we've got Greg. He's 54 years old, lives in Las Vegas. He's been sober since October 28th, 2016, and he's a father to two lovely daughters. One thing he says in his interview that I absolutely love is he doesn't look at sobriety as if he's giving something up. That is huge. And before we get any further, let's hear from Cafe RE. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years and it was painful. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group 24 hours a day. There, you can get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For $14 a month, you can join the conversation, be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, attend online meetups, attend in-person Cafe R meetups, and participate in book club. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Okay, let's get started. I want to talk to you guys about the views that the scientific world and just the general public have on alcoholism. You've heard me say several times on this podcast that alcoholism is a disease. In fact, in 1956, the American Medical Association classified alcoholism, addiction, as a disease. And as far as I know, it's still classified the same. But I wanted to share some different viewpoints with you guys. And if it is our goal, and it is my goal during the Recovery Elevator podcast to learn as much about addiction, alcoholism as I can, I need to be ready to number one, admit if I am wrong, which I've done a handful of times on this podcast. And number two, I need to be ready to go places where I hadn't previously wanted to go before. I need to be ready to change my mind and say, hey guys, I was wrong. Addiction is not a disease. So I'm going to cover the three basic camps of addiction, and then I'm going to give my own two cents. But before we start, let's first define addicts. Alcohol, in my opinion, is the most addictive drug in the entire world. So therefore, moving forward in this podcast episode, when I use the word addict, I'm referring to alcoholics. Oh yeah, and a lot of information I'm getting for this podcast episode came from an article I read in the Scientific American, and this link to this article will be included in the recoveryelevator.com episode 147 show notes. And thank you again, Randy, for doing such a great job with the show notes. The prevailing wisdom today is that addiction is a disease. This is the main line of the medical model of mental disorders with which the National Institute on Drug Abuse, the NIDA, is aligned. Addiction is a chronic and relapsing brain disease in which alcohol use becomes involuntary despite its negative consequences. So again, this first camp is that addiction is a disease. So the idea here is, roughly, that addiction is a disease because alcohol use changes the brain, and as a result of these changes, our drinking becomes compulsive, beyond the voluntary control of the user. In other words, the drinker has no choice, and his behavior is resistant to long-term change. Now, this way of viewing addiction has its benefits. 
If addiction is a disease, then addicts are not to blame for their plight, and this ought to help alleviate stigma and open the way for better treatment and more funding for research on addiction. This is the main rationale of an awesome article that was recently published in the New York Times, which describes addiction as a disease that is plaguing the U.S. and stresses the importance of talking openly about addiction. And this seems like a welcome change from the blame attributed by the moral model of addiction, which is basically the moral failing. And this basically says that addicts are nothing more than weak people who make bad choices and stick with those bad choices. Yet, though there are positive aspects to seeing addiction in this light, it's a disease, it seems unduly pessimistic, and though no one will deny that every behavior has neural correlates and that addiction changes the brain, this is not the same as saying that, therefore, addiction is pathological and irreversible. And there are reasons to question whether this is, in fact, the case. From everyday experience, we know that not everyone who drinks becomes addicted to alcohol, and many of those who do become addicted to alcohol can quit on their own, and that people don't all quit with the same ease. Some people manage to quit on the first attempt. They go cold turkey and that's it. For others, including myself, it takes multiple repeated attempts. Hundreds of day ones. So that's the first camp. The second camp will say that alcoholism is not a disease, but it's also not a choice, aka moral failing. In a book by Mark Lewis, The Biology of Desire, Why Addiction is Not a Disease, Mark, a neuroscientist and former drug addict, argues that addiction is uncannily normal, and he offers what he calls the learning model of addiction, which he contrasts to both the idea that addiction is a choice and to the idea that addiction is a disease. Lewis acknowledges that there are undoubtedly brain changes as a result of addiction, but he argues that these are the typical results of neuroplasticity in the learning and habit formation in the face of very attractive rewards. In reviewing a number of case studies, Lewis argues that most addicts don't think they are sick, and this is good for their recovery, and that the stories of people who have overcome their addiction instead of impotence and disease speak of a journey of empowerment and of rewriting one's life's narrative. That is, addicts need to come to know themselves in order to make sense of their addiction and to find an alternative narrative for their future. In turn, like all learning, this will also rewire the brain. So that's the second camp. Now here's the third. Taking a different line, psychologist at Harvard University, Gene Heyman, in his book, Addiction, a Disorder of Choice, also argues that addiction is not a disease, but sees it, unlike Lewis, as a disorder of choice. Heyman presents powerful evidence, not only that just about 10% of people who use drugs get addicted, and only around 15% of regular alcohol drinkers become alcoholics, but also that around 80% of addicts overcome their addiction on their own by the age of 30. These people do so because the demands of their adult life, like keeping a job or being a parent, are incompatible with heavy binge drinking. Now there's something familiar with those numbers. The very first book I read on recovery on January 1st, 2010, this book is still my favorite. It's Beyond the Influence by Catherine Ketchum. In her book, she mentions that 10 to 15% of people have a genetic predisposition to become an alcoholic if, of course, they drink enough. So that's actually almost in line with what Hayward is saying, that 80% of people can overcome their addiction, their drinking problems on their own, while some, roughly 10 to 15%, become addicted. Again, that 10 to 15% has a genetic predisposition. Okay, back to the thinking with camp three. Now, this might seem contrary to what we are used to thinking, and it is true there is substantial evidence that addicts often relapse, 
but most studies on addiction are conducted on patients in treatment, and this skews the population sample. For most alcoholics never go into treatment, and the ones that do are the ones, the minority, that have not managed to overcome their addiction on their own. So in Camp 3, the difference between people who get sober and don't seems to be largely about determinants of choice, or alternatives to the drink. Because in order to kick the drinking, there must be a viable alternative, coping mechanisms, to fall back on, and often these are not available. You've heard the word coping mechanism a lot in the past 10 podcast episodes. We alcoholics, we don't have good coping mechanisms. So with Camp 3, although choices are in principle available to the alcoholic, viable choices for people are largely dependent on determinants of choice beyond their control, and this can mitigate their responsibility. So again, Camp 3 is basically saying that addiction is a choice. However, oftentimes healthier alternatives, healthier choices are not always present for everyone. So those are the three camps, the three rationales of thinking when it comes to alcoholism. And to summarize, the first one is the disease model. The second one says alcoholism is not a disease, but it's also not a choice. But basically ingrained habits due to the neuroplasticity and the learning habit formation when we drink. And then the third camp says it's a disorder of choice. However, in this third camp, like Catherine Ketchum says in Beyond the Influence, they say about 10 to 15% of regular alcoholic drinkers become alcoholics. That's the same number that Catherine Ketchum in her book, Beyond the Influence, again, says have the genetic predisposition to become an alcoholic. So where am I on this topic? Well, I'm at about camp 1.5. And again, alcoholism recovery, it's confusing. Even medical professionals don't know how to deal with alcoholism and diagnose it. In 2014, there were over 140 medical schools in America, and only 14 of those schools had only one class on addiction. So my take on this is, yes, it is a disease that we have a genetic predisposition that we alcoholics, if we drink enough alcohol, we will eventually become addicted to alcohol. And if you are genetically predispositioned to become an alcoholic, it's oftentimes your environment that pulls the trigger on that gun, which your genetics preloads. So yes, it is a disease in my opinion, but I'm a little confused on one thing. You've heard me say in previous podcast episodes that everybody who drinks alcohol will eventually become addicted to it. That's like baldness. If all guys were to live to be 500 years old, nobody would have hair at age 500. Fortunately, I don't think I'm going to go bald in this lifetime. However, if I were to live to be 500 years old, I would be completely bald. And that's another rationale of thinking when it comes to alcoholism that everybody will become an alcoholic if they drink enough alcohol and we have enough time. For example, I became an alcoholic at age 21, 22. My brother, who is now a normal drinker, might become an alcoholic at age 312. But we're not gonna live that long to find out. When I got my DUI in July of 2014, I had to fulfill some classroom DUI classes. And that was the type of thinking in the workbook that we had to do that everybody will become addicted to alcohol and it's your environment and your genetic makeup that will determine when you become addicted to alcohol. Some people will become addicted to alcohol within a reasonable lifespan, zero to average age of 83 years. Or if we did live longer, you might become an alcoholic at age 200, 300, 412. 
And then there's the other side of the fence, which I've also said on this podcast, is that roughly 10 to 12%, and this is for Caucasians, have the genetic predisposition to become addicted to alcohol if they drink enough alcohol. Now, this contradicts what I just said, that everybody will eventually become addicted to alcohol. So guess what? I'm totally fine not knowing where to be, but I can give you this recovery elevator audience. It is my commitment to get to the bottom of this and I will. Well, I'll try my hardest and guess what? That's the best that I can do. And before we get to Greg, I want to talk to you guys about the Recovery Elevator Social in Dallas on Saturday, January 20th at the Marriott Residence Inn near Dallas DFW Airport. This social will take place from 7 to 9 p.m. and will be a great way to get the new year started off right. You can go to recoveryelevator.com forward slash Dallas for info and tickets. Space is limited, so don't wait. All right, let's hear from Greg. Greg, how are you? I'm doing great, Paul. It's uh, great to be on the show. Really looking forward to talking to you. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us, Greg. You know what? I'm going to answer this question for you. Greg's been sober for 361 days. It's one year on October 28th. Congratulations, Greg. That's freaking awesome. Thanks, Paul. It, uh, it is. I, uh, in fact, I was going to ask you if you could help me do the math because I know how many days I have left to go uh, before I get to my one-year anniversary, but I didn't know how many I had gotten to this point. I know you're great in math, and in five days, it'll be one year, and uh, I'm excited about that. It's been a great year, but I'm really looking forward to the, you know, the next year and the year after that, and recovery is awesome. <laughs> Thanks for the compliment on the math. I was close to blundering 365 minus 4, but we pulled it out. <laughs> Before we get any further, Greg, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old are you, do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun? Yeah, so I'm 54 years old. I live in Las Vegas. I'm an attorney, but I've spent uh, the most recent part of my career kind of working in uh, HR and human resources. I say that, I kind of jokingly say I'm in recovery from the law, but I, uh, I'm married. I've been married for 26 years. My wife is awesome. I've got two amazing daughters. One is 22, the other is 18. And I, uh, I love to run, cook, travel, do a lot of things outside. And, uh, and I got to tell you that I've, I've done all those things for all my life, but they're so much better in recovery, especially the the running and the exercise, I just, you know, I feel better physically, mentally, emotionally, and life is good. Las Vegas is kind of a funny town to, to be sober in, but you can, you know, you can get in trouble anywhere and you can also be sober anywhere. It's, uh, so that's kind of my outlook. Yeah, yeah, you can get in trouble anywhere and you can get sober anywhere. A lot of people say, oh, you know, it's, it's so hard to get sober in my city because it's just our culture, it's what we do, but it's everywhere. So nice job for getting sober in Las Vegas. I'm sure when people hear that, they only think of the Strip. But yeah, there's a world of community. There's a recovery network everywhere. So nice job on that. And Greg, back it up a little bit, my friend, man. So talk to me about when you first started to realize, or first started to notice that you perhaps might not drink normally. You know, it's as you've said many times in your on your podcast. I think it's a you know it's a progressive disease. Now that I'm on the other side of it and and sober, looking back, I can see the signs. I've never been a normal drinker. I've always had trouble knowing when to stop. And you know, even back as far as high school, college, uh, after college. So I think that just uh, when I look back on it, I see the signs and 
Had I been a little bit more self-aware during the time, I, I might have taken steps earlier to stop it. But and I feel blessed that I still have a lot of life left, and uh, I'm sober now and really loving it. But but it's one of those things where I've you know I've always had kind of a love-hate relationship with alcohol. I've I've loved it, but it's also been the source of a lot of you know bad decisions I've made in my life. And a lot of, you know, pain that I've caused other people and, and difficulty that I've had. So I don't know that there was one particular moment. I think it was uh, kind of a progression that finally culminated in an event about a year ago, just short of a year ago, that, you know, that really was the turning point in my decision to quit drinking and kind of turn my life around. So can you tell me about a time you, you mentioned that you didn't really know when to stop? Can you expand a little bit more about that? And was there a time when you experienced that firsthand? Yeah, there. Well, there were a lot of uh, a lot of times. So you know, typically, if we were, you know, if I was having people over at our house for dinner and we were drinking, I, I would always be the one who would continue after the meal was over. Or if I was uh, out with friends and you know, at some point the party would start to wind down. And I was always the one who wanted to continue. So I, I never really had the ability to just stop. And uh, I, I think you've mentioned before in your podcast that you know, if, er, in your earlier days, if you were out at a restaurant and you saw somebody left a half full drink or a half full beer, you you couldn't believe uh, what they were doing. I was I was that guy. Uh, you know, I'd see the table next to me and somebody leaving a drink and heading uh, for the door, and I was shocked. How could you do that? That's such a waste. So I, I, I just didn't have the ability to, you know, to, to turn that switch off. And, you know, when you're 20 years old and in college, that's, uh, that's one thing. But when you get into your 30s and 40s and have a family, it's a completely different uh, scenario. And it's, uh, it's not healthy and it's not good. And eventually I just decided that that was not something I, you know, I wanted to continue doing. I didn't, I didn't want to live my life that way, and I, I knew that there was something better and healthier, and I uh, made the decision to, to, to stop. You know, it really has been a, a, a blessing for me. So when it comes to drinking poison, which alcohol is, we get our on and off switch permanently stuck on on. Just think about that for a second. That's that's a dangerous and volatile situation right there. And if you really think about that for what it is, we get stuck drinking. We can't stop. And I couldn't stop personally. And eventually I was going to go down a slow and progressive path to death. And I was headed that way. So nice job for you too, Greg, to recognize that because a lot of people don't recognize that. Now, 351 days ago, was it something that happened? Was it your rock bottom moment? And if not, can you describe your rock bottom moment? Yeah, it, it absolutely was. So what happened was that, that summer, uh, the summer of 2016, I played on a softball team with my company. And for some strange reason, we won the league championship. So I decided to host a postseason celebration at my house and had uh, some of the team over. It was a Friday night, and, you know, we started drinking. We were celebrating started out drinking beer, and then I think we switched to margaritas uh, after that. Uh, we, we stopped the margaritas and just started drinking shots of tequila. And, of course, as you can imagine, it just you know got out of hand. I drank way too much. I blacked out. I got sick. Um, 
Now, these are guys, most of the guys on the team are a lot younger than me. Most of them are single. I, I'm not sure why I thought I could keep up with them, but, that, you know, that's what happens after you've had a, a few margaritas. And it just was a bit, you know, it was just a bad, bad scene. My daughter had been out for the evening with friends. She came home kind of found me in that state. My wife was home. She was, you know, completely uh, upset and disgusted. And the next morning I woke up, it was probably about the lowest I had ever felt in my life, you know, physically, spiritually, emotionally, just wrecked. And I, I decided that, you know, it was time to make a change. I, I, I didn't want to do that anymore. It was uh, ruining my relationship. It wasn't the person I wanted to be. And, you know, from that point forward, I, I really started to change. I went out for a long walk that day. It was a Saturday. I called a good friend of mine who I know was in recovery. Great shout out. His name is Mark. If Mark, if you're listening, couldn't, I uh, can't thank you enough. Had a long talk with him about what he had been going through and uh, he gave me some suggestions about what I could do. Over the course of the next several days, I reached out to my brother. Uh, I told him, uh, you know, I admitted to him that I was an alcoholic and I was going to take steps to try to turn my life around. A few days after that, I told my parents to really start creating some accountability. And it was so kind of liberating to be able to tell people uh, for the first time in my life. And I think there were those around me who knew that I had a drinking problem, but I had never admitted it, and I had certainly never asked for anyone's help. And taking that first step really was, you know, it was kind of transformational. Sometime during those first few days, I found uh, your podcast and listened, I think, to the first one. And then over the course of the next several months, I listened to every single one. I'm, I'm a runner I used to listen to only music, but I started listening to the Recovery Elevator podcasts and just found them to be, you know, very inspirational, very educational, learned a lot. And a lot of what I know about recovery came from those podcasts. And then I started, I think that Friday, that first Friday, which would have been a week, I I went to my first Celebrate Recovery meeting, walked in, uh, didn't know a soul, didn't know what I was getting myself into. And really found a connection with the people and with the program and have been going ever since, uh, coming up on a year now. So that really was uh, that night and then that next day was, was really the bottom. But from that, uh, as you say, on the recovery elevator, it's, you know, we took the stairs down, we got to take the elevator back up. And uh, that was the first step in heading back up. And uh, it's, been a great ride ever since. <laughs> hey, thanks for listening to the podcast, Greg. I highly appreciate it. And I, I've messed up the end before too. He took took the elevator down and the stairs back up. <laughs> sometimes, <That's>... sometimes <laughs> Ty who edits the podcast, he's like, "Paul, you 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 said it opposite again." I'm like, "Oh, thanks, Ty. I appreciate it." But yeah, you you just covered like three hours of material right there. So you just, you, I mean, you're just like dropping value bombs. My pen ran out of ink. Nice job. Um, but I want to back it up a, a little bit there. So clear eyes, sure. full hearts, Friday Night Lights reference. You win state or you win league. And the next day you wake up and you're broken spiritually, mentally, physically, I think you said emotionally. Uh, and that's the three the, the three fulcrums of this disease of, of how it attacks us. And tell us more about that feeling when you were just beaten down spiritually, mentally, and physically. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, physically, I was probably one of the worst hangovers I ever had in my life, and it, I, you know, literally had to clean up the mess from the night before, but I guess that's a metaphor for, you know, the mess that I had created in my life. I, my wife, I think, was, was about, uh, had run out of patience. If that had happened one more time, I'm sure she would have left. And, uh, you know, so the, the relationships uh, that I had formed in my life were falling apart. Emotionally, I just, you know, I was completely drained. I, I didn't know where to turn. I knew that I had a problem. I knew that I had to do something about it, but uh, I didn't know where to turn. We were, at that point, we had only been in Las Vegas for a little over a year, so I didn't really have the support system here that I had in Minnesota where we used to live, where we had lived for many years. And I, I just, you know, spiritually, I, I, you know, I didn't have anything to, to call on. So it was, you know, as I said, it was really kind of the lowest point that I, I think I'd ever felt in my life. When I admitted it to myself and I admitted it, began to admit it to others, it was like a, a weight that was lifted off my shoulder. So it was really kind of a, a, a roller coaster of emotions. On the one hand, I felt just completely drained, but I also felt hopeful and optimistic about uh, what was uh, what was to come. There had been prior occasions when I knew that my drinking had been out of control or gotten out of control and was excessive, and I would try to cut back, but it was always just, okay, I'm, you know, I'm going to stop drinking or I'm going to cut back a little bit, but this really felt very different. It was not just giving up the drinking, but really trying to make some fundamental changes in my life that would coincide with being sober. And that gave me a feeling of hope and optimism that I, I hadn't felt, uh, I don't think, any time prior in my life. Greg, I love your day one of sobriety, October 28th, 2016. You said you got up, you went for a walk, you called your friend Mark. Great name, a brother's name, Mark. I also couldn't do it without my brother. And you called somebody else. You said, I just, uh, so I scheduled my mornings from 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock. I did a podcast episode on reverse intervention, which should be coming out. It might even be tied to the same episode that you're being interviewed on. And it sounds like you did almost the same thing. It's where you call the shots. You called your friend Mark, and it wasn't like your friend Mark sat you down, but you called Mark. And you said, look, this is a serious deal. This is what's going on with me. You reached out for help. That's freaking awesome. And I can't believe that I left out the liberation component of it. I just recorded this podcast. That's like one of the best parts of reverse intervention. When it's done, you just feel this weight come off your shoulders. And tell us more about that weight. When you came out, how liberating is that? It, it was awesome. I, I felt like I, could, I had taken a, you know, a huge first step. And, and I know it's you know, it's one day at a time, but that, that first day, those first few days, I, you know, I admitted to myself that I, ha that I had a problem, and that was the first step in really trying to overcome it or deal with it, and it, it really was, it, you know, it was liberating, and to be able to tell other people, and, and since then, I've, you know, I've expanded my accountability network, I have a sponsor, so I'm, you know, much more comfortable talking about uh, my addiction and uh, my sobriety. But those first few days, uh, to be able to reach out to people and, and tell them really felt good. And I, I would encourage anyone who is, you know, kind of going through that same thing to, to do that. It, it really helps 
both internally, but it also uh, it, it helps to get information. You hear from other people, other groups that they may have been involved in, what they're going through, and uh, and that's it was very encouraging to me to you know to get information from other people uh, and begin as you have said to, to build that recovery portfolio. And you know, in the first few days, you're you're really kind of kind of like a deer in the in the wilderness walking around but you begin to see things and see the light and it becomes more clear but but those those first few days i mean it's tough you're you know you're kind of going through a lot uh physically and emotionally and to have other people that you know are praying for you and supporting you um really makes a big difference or made a big difference for me and one of my favorite things about doing a podcast is I get to learn about resources. There are so many resources out there in recovery, and I'm in recovery myself. <laughs> you probably already knew that. And tell us more about Celebrate Recovery. You know, we've heard about AA, we've heard about Life Ring, Smart Recovery, Refuge Recovery. Some are 12-step based, some are non-12-step based, some are Buddhist based, et cetera, et cetera. Tell us about Celebrate Recovery. Yeah, uh, so Celebrate Recovery is, is a Christ-centered 12-step program, and we believe that God is our higher power, and uh, through His grace and His mercy, we can overcome our addictions. And it really is, uh, I, I got into it uh, because of alcohol, but it really is for any addiction that you might have, whether it's uh, drugs, uh, gambling, pornography, we say that we help to overcome your hurts, hang-ups, and habits. So there are people who are dealing with all sorts of uh, issues, uh, codependency, food issues. And, but it, it, what I think makes it different from some of the other programs is that it's a Christian-based program. So that you know, we call on God as our higher power, and we rely on Him to help us uh, work through whatever issues that uh, that we're working on, and they're all over uh, the country. I think they were they celebrate recovery was started at a church in uh, Southern California, uh, but it's spread uh, around the country, and in fact, I think around the world. But typically, what a uh, a night looks like, and the, uh, and they're based at local churches, so you can go online to celebrate recovery and and find a group near you. But what the evening looks like is there's usually a meal, um, and it's usually a, you know an hour meal, barbecue or or pizza or something where you can come and just walk right in and have something to eat. Then they have a large group worship that consists of music, praying, and then either a message from one of the Celebrate Recovery leaders or a testimonial from somebody who has been through, who is in recovery and uh, tells their story. And then after that, they, uh, we break into small groups. And there are usually uh, four or five different small groups. They're, they're separated by gender. And you may have a small group on chemical dependency, which would be alcohol, uh, drugs. You may have one on uh, sexual purity issues. And then typically there's one on life issues, so anything that you're dealing with. And, and then after that, you, uh, we come back together for a large group, and there's just fellowship, uh, dessert, coffee, and fellowship, and that's it. And I go to a couple of them. I go to one on Friday nights, uh, and I go to another one on Monday night, two different groups. Uh, and I, I've really uh, found it to be very, very helpful, and I love the fellowship. 
And, and what I would say, I know that, uh, you know, for some people, religion is, and Christianity is a little bit difficult, uh, depending on how you may have been brought up, but I'd give it a try. It, it's non-denominational, so whatever faith background you come from, uh, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't matter. And we say, you know, give it a try. Uh, give it 60 days, and, and if after 60 days uh, you're not happy, we'll refund your misery and you get all your misery back and you can go on. But I, I've, I have found it to be very, very helpful. Um, I was raised in a Christian family, so to me it's comfortable. But I, I really like, uh, I like the music. I, I think that there's something very powerful in singing and uh, worshiping through music uh, brings you together. And, uh, and I've found that, you know, through God's grace and mercy, I've really been able to, to not just uh, give up drinking, but, you know, really change my life. I'm much more uh, at peace, much more patient, and, uh, and I really feel like, you know, God is calling me and has a plan for me, and this recovery is just a small part of that. And a lot of that has come through the, the faith and the guidance that I've found in Celebrate Recovery. So you, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're, you're telling me that Celebrate Recovery starts off with a barbecue, a pizza party, and then you guys sing songs, and you break off into small groups. Man, I gotta, I gotta rethink my recovery program. And if, <laughs> if you don't, and if you don't like uh, Celebrate Recovery, you can go back to the pit of doom or the pit of misery. Dilly dilly. Actually, that's a, that's a line, that's a line from a Bud Light commercial, but it's a pretty funny commercial that's out right now. <laughs> dilly dilly. But uh, yeah, I, I mean that sounds that sounds awesome, and it's it's just another niche. There's so many rec- recovery resources out there, and there are a lot of people that have the hit that hiccup with God. But I'm sure you can still go and replace the higher power with whatever you want. But it's sounds like this is more of a, you know of a religious approach which is awesome it's just another resource to check out and you mentioned you have a sponsor and you guys do the 12 steps or you mentioned there are steps tell us more about that yeah I'm glad yeah so uh, celebrate Re- recovery has something called a step study uh, it's a year-long class or a study that you do with a small group of men and I started doing it in May and we follow this, the 12 steps of AA, and you work through those. Uh, there, uh, there are a series of small workbooks that, that accompany the, the group. And uh, we meet weekly for a couple of hours. And the way it works in Celebrate Recovery is you start out, and the group for the first couple of months is open. And people can join it or drop out. And you get to a point, I think, around the third or fourth step where the group closes, and that really is so that you can develop relationships with the other people in your group. And you just you work through the steps together, and, and it's led by somebody, uh, in our case there are two co-facilitators, who have already been through an entire uh, year-long step study. And then as part of that, you have a sponsor. I, I found a sponsor who I met in Celebrate Recovery and. Another shout out. His name is Mike, and Mike, if you're listening, I uh, can't thank you enough for everything that you've done for me. And uh, and so you just work through the steps over the course of a year, and then once you're through it, you can sponsor somebody else if you uh, if you choose to. Uh, and I've met several people who have been through step studies two or three times, and I think. Uh, depending on kind of where you're going through in your life, you uh, it probably changes a little bit 
each time you do it. So it's uh, it's based on the 12 steps of alcohol, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, um, but because it's part of Celebrate Recovery, it's also kind of a Christ-centered uh, 12-step program. Greg, there's a couple things I like about that. Number one, again, the pizza and the barbecue, that sounds awesome. But most importantly, you know, you can go to 50 AA meetings and meet zero people. It's tough to do. But I remember going to a lot of AA meetings. I don't, I didn't speak. I'd go in there a couple minutes after it started. I'd sit down and then either I'd leave a couple minutes before it ended or we do, you know, the, you know, keep working it if you work it. And I'd bolt out the door. I'd meet zero people. It sounds like with Celebrate Recovery that it's, it's tough to go there and keep your mouth shut. And it sounds like it's, it's built to build that fellowship, the community, which is the most important part of recovery. Every program is based on that pillar. Um, and another thing, I like the name. I like Celebrate Recovery. Alcoholics Anonymous, to me, like the anonymous part. It, and, and what, what am, am, I, am I ashamed of something? Should I be hiding something? I get what is said in those meetings needs to stay there, but I'm not so hot on that name. I like the celebrate component. Um, I'm happy to be where I'm at right now. I look at it as an opportunity and not a sacrifice. And more on that note, in the email you sent me, you mentioned that you've been successful in this past year's sobriety with that method of thinking is you look at it as an opportunity and not a sacrifice and comment a little bit more about that. Yeah, that that's exactly right, Paul. It It is really a celebration and uh, it's very optimistic, very positive, the whole uh, idea of celebrating recovery. Uh, and for me personally, uh, there have been, you know, there were times in the past where I tried to give up drinking and I saw it as that as having to give up something, uh, having to quit something. And with that mentality, for me, it just it didn't work. This time around, I really feel like I've gained so much. I, you know, I've gained, obviously, my sobriety, but I've gained peace and happiness and joy and serenity. And every day I wake up and I'm thankful for not just my sobriety, but uh, for my life, uh, for everything that I have. And so I, I really look at uh, at, at uh, recovery as something that I've been given. It's a gift that uh, that I have, and I'm going to make um, the most of it every single day. So for me, it really has been a kind of a complete 180 in in my thinking about alcohol and uh, and my life and. A lot of that I uh, I really attribute to Celebrate Recovery and what I've learned and the people that I've met there are so there and I you know I met people whose stories are so much tougher who have been through so much more hardship than I have and they're hopeful and optimistic and positive about uh, what's happened to them and I think that's that really is. Part of what, for me, has made Celebrate Recovery uh, so beneficial and so attractive is the optimism that uh, we talk about and, and not the pessimism of, oh, I, I'm never going to be able to drink again or I'll never be able to enjoy this or that. It, it, there really is a, much more of, a, of an emphasis on looking forward and uh, the gift that we've all been given in overcoming our addictions. Oh, I'll never be able to drink poison till I barf again. Uh, in reality, <laughs> we're not giving anything up. That's the, that's that's the foundation of it. Now, you know, uh, Greg, with almost a year of sobriety, what are your what are your thoughts on relapse? Yeah, you know, I um, 
I, uh, I'm kind of struggling because I don't know. I mean, I, I've heard you talk about a, talk a lot about it, and I, I really appreciate your approach to it, which is, it you know, it it may happen. I um, I hope it doesn't, but it if it does, I'm not going to beat myself up over it. So I I try not to think about it too much. I really try to focus, uh, you know, one day at a time. But it 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 may happen, and if it does, I'm you know I'm gonna get my one day chip again and my 30 day chip and start over. But I I really feel as though I'm you know every day I get a little bit stronger, get a little bit uh, more comfortable in my recovery. So I uh, I hope that it doesn't happen. Um, oh. But I know, you know, you've talked about the ism, the incredible short memory, and it, it might. And, you know, we go through some difficult things in our, our lives, and you never know what life is going to throw you. So I think that uh, I don't want to say never, but I'm praying and hoping that I don't have a relapse and I just continue on the path that I am right now. Greg, I think that's a great way to look at it. It's, it's, it's in the back of our mind. It can happen. If it does, I'm going to get my one-day chip again. And this is for me speaking. If it does happen, I'll get my chip again. I'm going to not beat myself up, and I'll get back on it. Um, you know, that's not the plan, though. My goal is to stay sober for many, many years to come to the pit of joy, dilly, dilly. <laughs> but uh, if it does happen, <laughs> right. it happens. But uh, that's not the plan. So we have reached the rapid-fire round. Greg, if you answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? I'm ready. Number one, Greg, what was your worst memory from drinking? Yeah, it was uh, definitely uh, not quite a year ago, waking up that morning after after the party with the softball team and just, uh, well, I couldn't remember part of the night, but what I could remember was pretty bad. And that was the low point, uh, but from there I started heading back up. So there was some positive that came out of it, but um, that was pretty bad. And next question, we've all heard of the aha moment. When was your oh shit moment indicating you really can't control your drinking? Yeah, um, I, I don't remember exactly when this happened, but there was a time a few years ago when I, I one of my kids had something that I had to go to, whether it was a concert or an event that I knew was going to interfere with my drinking. It was on one of my drinking nights. And I, uh, it really bothered me that that was going to cut into it or prevent me from doing it. And I thought, man, that really is kind of twisted thinking that I'm getting upset over having to spend s some time with my family because it was going to interfere with my drinking. And I think I, I at that point, thought, boy, this is <laughs> something is not right here. Yeah, with 361 days of sobriety, what's your plan moving forward? How are you going to get 362, 34, 365? Well, you're the, doing this podcast today has been great. I was coming up on my one-year anniversary, and uh, so this has really helped. Um, it's uh, one day at a time, but as I said, I'm uh, in the step study. We're about halfway through, so I'm going to finish that. I really want to uh, to give back, uh, be of service. I'm going to keep listening to the recovery elevator and uh, keep going to celebrate recovery and doing the things that I have been doing and just trying to build on them. 
And Greg, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? Uh, the best advice I ever received is on uh, one of your podcasts, and that's focus on the similarities, not on the difference. I think I heard that early on, and it's shaped my whole way of thinking and really has been very, very helpful for me. Yeah, sobriety and recovery, it can't even start unless you're focusing on the similarities in recovery. So I agree 100% on that one. And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in recovery or thinking about getting sober? Yeah, what I, what I would say is if you, you, know, if if you think that uh, you might have a problem is reach out to just one other person, somebody that you trust, that you know, and, uh, and just tell them or ask for their guidance. And you don't have to announce it on Facebook. You don't have to walk into a, me- a meeting. But uh, reach out to one other person and have a heart-to-heart conversation. And uh, if it's somebody who's in recovery, that's great. But if not, uh, that's okay, too. But Get somebody else's perspective, their support, and their guidance, and go from there. And it's almost like you can selfishly reach out to somebody because, like you mentioned earlier, the feeling is so liberating. It just feels great to do it. Um, and before we depart, Greg, give listeners your own customized You Might Be an Alcoholic if line. Yeah, this one, a little background on this. So for most of my life, my nickname has been Grog. And that comes from Snowshoe Grog, the drink. <laughs> so you might be an alcoholic if you're named after a drink. <laughs> if your nickname is after a drink. I love it. Greg, thank you so much for joining us, helping me stay sober today. Hey, congratulations on one year. We're not there yet, but I'm pretty sure you're going to get there. Nice job, Greg. Well, thank you, Paul. Uh, it's, uh, it's been a great year. Couldn't have done it uh, without you uh, and the podcast. And really want to thank you for everything you've done uh, for all of us in recovery. You're a, you're a great resource and a great inspiration. Uh, thank you for the kind words, and thanks for listening, Greg. Congratulations to Elliot, who just hit four years of sobriety. In episode 41, that was his interview on the Recovery Elevator podcast. He only had two years of sobriety. He was also interviewed in episode 52, where we do a recap of the value bombs that I learned during my first year of podcasting. Of all my interviewees on the Recovery Elevator podcast, Elliot is the one that gets the most requests by listeners to say, hey, can you get me in contact with Elliot? He seems like he's got his stuff together. Okay, Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this.